Grab your Bibles, open up to the book of John. Yes, we return to John. John chapter 5. And, and here's what's going to happen. As you're turning to John chapter 5, please understand this. Um, I'm going to be hitting John 5. You're like, wait a minute. A month ago, Brian was up here preaching. Brian was up here preaching. Um, I can't even do it like he does. I can't. I'm sort of, I'm right here. Um, Brian did a fantastic job. The reason I'm preaching on John 5 is not because he didn't do a good job. He did a great job. I'm approaching it from a different angle. And when I'm preaching on the next couple of weeks, we need this part of it to review to head us into the next couple of weeks. So you're going to hear it from a different angle. And some of my, that sort of sounds familiar um, because I might say something that he might have said or reference. But I'm going to approach it from a different angle. Uh, so I want to give you that. Okay. And here's the second thing. Last week, Pastor Paul preached. And, uh, and here's something. I want to correct this. He said from right here. Pastor Rex, I can't do a Texas accent. I'm going to try it. Okay. He said that I said he was third string. Okay. I want to let you know, I never said that. Okay. I never called him third string. Okay. However, he is benched for a while. I will say that. So. Now, Paul will be back up here soon. He did a great job. Very thankful to have, uh, you know, the, these two men who are able to come up here and, and fill the pulpit at times. So appreciate that. So let's look at John chapter five, verse one. Let's pick it up right there. Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city near the sheep gate was the pool of Bethsaida with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, Would you like to get well? I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up, someone else gets out there ahead of me. And Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Instantly the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry the sleeping mat. But he replied, the man who healed me told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who said such a thing as that, they demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, Now you're well, so stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Now, as we look into this, we have to understand this is the third miracle that John records. Matthew, Mark, Luke, the other Gospels, those also in chronological order, if you were to read them, you would know the first miracle, water to wine, which is in the book of John. Then there's other miracles that take place, Matthew, Mark, Luke record. Then we get to John, and then we get to the third miracle that's recorded. But this is the first miracle in which there's opposition from religious leaders. Opposition to what he is doing. It's important to note this because I've, I've had discussion uh, with different people in different times. And, and actually had two people within a 24-hour period were like, oh, Jesus and the Roman Empire were, you know, they opposed Jesus. Like, mm. actually, if you do a study of scripture, it wasn't so much the Roman Empire that opposed Jesus. It was the religious leaders that opposed Jesus Christ. It was Pilate who was about ready to release Jesus so he wouldn't be crucified. But it was religious leaders who yelled out what? Crucify him. So it's important that we see that the Jewish leaders were the ones who were supposed to be on the side of Jesus, but actually they were the ones opposing him. And in this miracle, we see where it sort of really starts to dig in and becomes more uh, open and obvious. 
It's important also to note the location. This is inside the city walls of Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate. And it says it was the, the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. And again, I want you to, to look at some of this because in the mid to late 1800s, they did an excavation and they found the ruins of these pools. Which is important because, again, a lot of times people are like, hey, uh, you know, this Bible stuff is all made up. And it's fun to be able to point to historical findings and facts and say, no, this was real. See, this is true. This is real. So if you were to look at a picture now of what it would look like, the ruins would look somewhat like you're seeing up on the screen of what this is going on right now. But it's like, that doesn't look like a fun pool to jump in, right? Because uh, obviously over time and wear and tear. So let me give you an artist's rendering of what it would look like. This is what it would have looked like back in the day before it was all uh, ripped apart. There was actually two Olympic-sized swimming pools that were about 40 feet deep. These are huge. Okay, This is where people of wealth and, and those with the money, um, the well-known, they would hang out there. This was a nice place, right? But eventually that changed to what we read in verse 3. Verse 3 says what? Crowds of sick people, blind, laying, paralyzed, lay on the porches. The atmosphere changed, which was once thriving is now sort of, I don't really don't want to go there unless you're sick or lame or ill, blind, whatever it may be. But the question is, why are they gathering there? Why are these crowds of people gathering there at this point in time? Now, did you notice in, in your Bibles, if you're following along with me, uh, again, I read from the New Living Translation. I study from multiple uh, versions, but I read from it because it's an easy read to, to hear. But if you're reading in verse did anybody notice that verse 4 is missing? Take a look in your Bible again. If you've got it near you, you're going to read verse 3, and then it goes right to verse 5. And like, wait a minute, where's verse 4? Verse 4, there was a question of its origin, whether it was, not, whether it was or was not in the original manuscripts. Because there was a question, was this really in the original manuscripts or not? So some translations have decided to leave it out. But if you were to read verse 7 and other verses, you'd say, oh, actually, verse 4 fits in there, so it should go in there. But again, we're not going to argue about whether it was or was not in the original manuscript. But here's what verse 4 tells us. This helps us answer that question. Why were the people there? It says this, An angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease they had. Now again, we aren't sure as to whether this was in the original manuscripts, but here's what matters. They believed it. These people believed it. That's why they were there. They wanted to get better. It makes sense, right? I mean, what do sick people do when they're sick? They want to feel better. They go to the doctor, right? The last time you had the flu, were you sitting there on day one when you had the flu saying, this is incredible. I just love being sick. I hope I stay this way at least for another five days, right? Nobody's that way, right? Unless you are like king sarcasm, okay? No, you want to get well. So you do everything you can to get better. These people were ill, sick, blind, lame. And what they believed was if they were into this water when it stirred, they would be healed. So let's put myself into a position of healing, right? That's what was going on here. But you look at this place and it really wasn't so much a place of hope. It was a, it was a sad place. I mean, you have a lot of helpless people there. Matter of fact, a lot of hopeless people. Some people, they were back further away from the pool. They weren't even close. They had no hope whatsoever of getting in. But yet they went there anyway. Sort of a sad state, but the thing is, here's the thing about you and I. We're, we are in a similar state. 
Not spiritually speaking, so to say. There's a verse in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5, verse 6. It says this, when we were utterly helpless. Help me with this. We were utterly what? Helpless. Let's try it again. We were utterly what? Helpless. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at the right time and died for us sinners. Because here's, here's the truth. You and I are not good enough to get into heaven. We're not. We cannot get into the presence of God. He's holy. We are not. We are utterly helpless. No way to get there. And that's when we are utterly helpless. That Christ came and he died for us to save us, to rescue us. We have to be in that state. We have to understand that state of hopelessness and helplessness before we're going to accept anybody's help, right? So it's a good description of these people as well. Utterly helpless. We need a Savior. So these people... Two, besides, I'm going to say being utterly helpless and hopeless, I'm going to make an assumption here, okay? That they're also spiritually blind. Now, why would I say that? When I'm looking at the scripture, I see Jesus showing up, and, and I don't know if his disciples are with him or not. Again, we would assume that some of them are. And he walks into this place, and yes, he hasn't been in Jerusalem that much enough to, for people to know who he is, but I would think somebody would maybe know who he is. And maybe shout out, Jesus, Son of God, or Lamb of God, or any title. Help us. But nobody, nobody says anything. Jesus is the one who initiates the contact. Even after Jesus heals this man, which we know about, nobody is like, whoa, look at that guy walk. Me next. Pick me. We don't see that either. Could they not see who Jesus was and is? Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, he says this, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They're unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand the message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. We need to understand this. Satan blinds the world, okay, of understanding who God is. And when the Holy Spirit works in our lives and opens us up, like you open up the Bible, and maybe when you first read it, you didn't get it. And as you surrender your life to Christ, his spirit enters you. And then all of a sudden, there's times you're reading, it's like, wow, I never saw that before. It's because we were spiritually blind. There's times I'll read a scripture for the 10th, 20th, 30th time. And maybe on the 35th time, it's like, it clicks. It's like, wow. It's almost like I was blinded to that truth. And God reveals things. There are people you will have conversations with and they don't get it. They don't understand why you're choosing this Christian life. They don't understand why you believe in God. They don't understand why you worship Jesus Christ. And if you mention the Holy Spirit, they really don't get it. They think you're a little wacko, right? Like, whoo, that's spirit person dude again, right? They're spiritually blind. So do not expect them to see what you're seeing. And I think that's what's going on here as well. Now, the question is asked, and again, uh, Brian preached on this. He talked about, would you like to get well? It's a simple yes or no. Hey, would you like to get well? Mm, Yes or no. (laughs) But he doesn't give that, does he? This man chooses instead to sort of like give some excuses that, again, Brian talked about. Um, maybe it was a thing of identity. I want to be known as the lame person, the sick dude. The, you know, I want to be known as the one that just needs everybody's help all the time. I find comfort in knowing that everybody you know, understands that I have problems. It makes me feel good. I don't know. Because here's the thing. To get well, if he says, yes, I want to be well, guess what? To get well means what? you got to live a new life. That's going to take effort. 
It's so easy to sit around other people who are moaning and whining, isn't it? Just just sit right in there with them. Yeah, this stinks. I know. Life stinks. Boo, boo. And everybody's like, everybody starts, right? That's, that's easy. That's so easy. You know what's hard? Is getting up and leaving that life and living a victorious life. That's hard. But not with Christ. Not at all with Christ. Sometimes I wonder, you know, why wouldn't you want to be a Christian? You ever ask that question? You look around at people and they're, maybe they're struggling. Something's like, man, why wouldn't you want to be a Christian? I don't know what it would be like life would be like if I were not a Christian? How do people make in life without Jesus Christ? Why not seek help and spiritual healing in your life? Then I remember as a Christian, that means that I'm going to have to live differently. And some people don't want that. Again, some people are blind to it. Some people don't want it. God takes holy living seriously. If you want to be a Christian, it's because you have honestly admitted to God that you are a wreck without God. If you are a Christian, that means we must admit that our sins are nasty and God doesn't want them in his sight. And we need to ask for forgiveness. We agree with God that we will turn from our sinful life and we will turn to him and live a life that is exemplified by holiness. That new life is guaranteed by the Spirit of God. Jesus shows us how to do it and the Holy Spirit empowers us to do it. That's what it means to be a Christian. But for some of us, like, I don't know if I want to do that because that means I've got to stop lying. My half-truths, I've got to give up. That means I've got to stop taking advantages of others. That means as a married person, I've got to stop flirting with the other person, you know? And i actually got to focus on my spouse. That means that I've got to show honesty and kindness and forgiveness to all these people if I'm a Christian, right? Are you ready to change? Because if you're going to be a Christian... That's part of that holy living. Do you really want to be well? So if it is, you've got to change your lifestyle, which means you can't hang around this, this pool of sickness and hopelessness and helplessness anymore. You need to move on. God made us to long after holiness. I really believe he prepared us for holiness, and our faith is the instrument that helps us get there. I believe God put this longing in our heart for heaven. We sang that song when we all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be. My heart longs for that rejoicing. But until then, God gives me the strength to make it for every day. And he does with you as well. If you're going to be a Christian, guess what also it changes? It doesn't just change your daily life. It changes how we show up here on Sunday. If you're a Christian, coming here means this. If you're visiting today for the first time, first of all, welcome. I'm glad you're here visiting. Okay. Next week, if you come, you're not a visitor anymore. You're part of the family, okay? Whether you want to call this your home church or not, as a Christian brother and sister, we're family. You go to another church, you're family. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you confess your mouth to holy God and you've given your life to him, guess what? Now when you come to church, you engage yourself in meeting other people. I don't know them and it's, I'm afraid I'm going to embarrass myself. Go for it. Let's all be embarrassed together, okay? Let's just... Here's what helps. Just walk up and say, hi, I'm Rex. Just start telling them your name. You know, don't make them guess, okay? And, and just meet people. Volunteer. You give. You pray. You serve. That's what happens when you become a Christian and you go to church. Your life changes. I don't know if uh, anybody here enjoys um, watching professional sports, especially football. 
Some of you maybe are in fantasy football leagues, I don't know, um, and you watch the draft and you couldn't wait to see where your favorite college player is going to go to your, the NFL team. Or you, as an NFL fan, couldn't wait to see who was coming to your team, right? And it's a, it's a pretty big deal because here's the thing. There's a small number of players, a little over 200, that are going to specifically get chosen. They get drafted. They get picked, right? There's all this anticipation. They're like, I wonder who's going to pick me. I wonder who's going to pick me. And they're waiting, and they're waiting for the phone call from that NFL team to let them know, hey, we're going to pick you. So when they call your name, I'll be ready to come up. And, and there's all that excitement. And then they get their name called. They go up. They get the jersey. And they get their picture taken. It's like, oh, I've got a new team, right? That player is now with a new team. He's no longer with his collegiate team. He's now with a brand new team. He's wearing a new jersey. He has a new coach. He's going to play in a new stadium. He's got a new locker room to change in, and he's got new teammates. It's pretty exciting. That's what God does when he chooses you and me. When you decide to take living for Christ seriously and you become a Christian, you've got a whole new team. You've got a new family. You've got a new locker room. You've got a new coach who is God. It all changes. But here's the difference. In the draft, you know who gets picked? The biggest, the fastest, and the strongest, right? Now, if you look at me right now and you're saying, hey, Rex, were you ever called up for the draft? If you're doing that right now, Get your eyes examined, okay? I'm not NFL material, not at all, right? Okay, so here's the thing. Where would I be in all this? I wouldn't even be close to being picked. That stinks for me, right? But here's how God works. If I played college football in the smallest division ever, what that might be, NAIA, okay? And then I'm on the worst team, okay? And I'm still not playing, okay? As a matter of fact, I'm on the sideline. And I'm on the sideline, the games, it's the last game of the year, okay? And it's the last quarter of the game. And it's the last 30 seconds of the game. Coach looks at me and goes, Rex, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Rex, that's you. Yeah, come on here. Go play. Thanks, coach. I'm the Rudy of football, okay, if you ever watch that movie, okay? But here's the thing. That's what God does. He picks me. He doesn't pick the the strongest and the most talented and the wealthiest. God looks out at us and he goes, I'm picking you. I I don't care your background. You don't have to be strong. You don't have to be vocal. I'm picking you. And there we are. We're on the sideline like, I'll never get picked by God. I'll never be out there. And God's like, no, I want you. I want you. And, and he picks us. And this unnamed man with an unknown illness has this sickness. We don't even know what it is. We don't know who he is. What do we know about this guy? Anybody, what do you know? How long he's been sick, right? How long has he been sick? How long has he been ill? How long has he been uh, disabled? Anybody know? How many years? 38. Yeah, 38 years. That's a long time. You know, Brian did a great job um, looking at this man, challenged us to look uh, at our lives and that, that hopelessness. And I'm sure we've all felt like him before. But I love what Jesus does. He walks into these two Olympic-sized pool areas. And what does he do? Does he do a cannonball love? You're like, boom, everybody's healed, right? He could have, right? That would have been awesome, okay? But what does he do? He does something that's even more incredible. Instead of healing them all just like that, which he can, he walks past a lot of people, comes up to this one man. We don't know why he's sick, what's going on. 38 years. I'm picking you, and I'll tell you why in a little second, okay? 
And that's what he does with us. He walks past the sea of faces sometimes. We feel like him, alone, right? Hopeless, helpless. And he picks us and says, I want you. I want to do something different in your life. Do you want to get well? We're like, yeah, right? But he doesn't. What does he say? He goes, well, look at, actually, look at verse 7. He goes, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water bubbles up. Yes or no? Well, let me start with this. I want to blame somebody. <laughs> that's, where he, that's where he goes. Hey, I don't have anybody here to help me. It's not my fault. If somebody was here, they could help me. Where did that start? Genesis, good answer. Yes. Adam and Eve, remember that? They took of the fruit they were not supposed to eat. God shows up in the garden with Adam and Eve. He's like, hey, hey, did somebody eat of this fruit? What does Adam say? Hey, the woman you gave me, he starts the blame game, doesn't he? Who, did he? who did he point to first? Well, the woman. It's her fault, right? And then he also threw God under the bus. The woman who you gave, you gave her to me. What am I supposed to do with her, right? Right? And then what did God's like looks at Eve, and Eve's like, Eve, what's going on here? And she's like, the serpent. The serpent that was here. Oh, the blame game continues. So, you know, right now, we play the blame game all the time, right? And that's, that's what's going on here. It seems natural to blame somebody else for our brokenness, right? Hey, I don't have a job because. Hey, this situation went wrong because. Hey, I lost my temper because you. We, we, we take our brokenness, our sin, our struggles, and it's somebody else's fault. And Jesus is like, I didn't come here to listen to the blame game. You're disabled. You're weak. You just need healing. You need somebody to fix your broken condition. And so stop blaming somebody else. Let's get on this broken condition, right? And the other thing that he did here was he, he blamed and then he pointed out, I'm alone. I don't have anybody to help me. Unfortunately, in life, there are times when we are going to be alone. And you will feel alone. And that stinks, doesn't it? Many of us have been there. It's like, I don't like being alone, right? But here's the good news. I think that's why God has reminded us throughout Scripture not to be worrisome, not to be fearful. God says, I've not forsaken you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. God's promise, I'm here with you to stay. I will not walk out on you. I will not leave you. You are not alone. You might feel alone, but I'm here with you. And this man felt alone and he felt helpless and hopeless, right? I want to encourage you something here. In this moment, Jesus tells him to stand up and do something. And I was thinking too, who who was the last person that got healed in that water? Why didn't they stick around and help anybody? I mean, he's like, I don't have anybody here. Well, where's the last person that got healed? Where did, did they take off? If they were healed, <laughs> why didn't they help? And you know, it's sort of with us, when we find hope, when we find new life, you know what we should be doing? Find the next person who's hurting and help them. Well, I don't know if I've got the words. You don't have to have the words. You just have to be there for them. Let Jesus do the talking, right? So I was thinking a bit about this. You know, how do we, how do we love God? Because that question always haunted me as a kid. How do we love God? Well, we keep his commands. How do we keep his commands? What are his commands? Well, one of them is to love others. Think of the time when you made a choice and you knew it was bad. Or you were doing all you could do to keep somebody from making a bad choice. So you're walking and you slip on something or you trip on something. What's the first thing you do if you've got people behind you? Well, well, what's the first thing we should do? We turn around and say, hey, be careful. It's slippery. Or, hey, watch your step, right? 
Because we went through something bad, we should be the first to turn around and make sure the next person doesn't follow and do the same thing. And I believe spiritually that's what we should be doing as well. When Christ saves us and redeems us and frees us, guess what we should be doing? Turning around and find somebody else who needs that same freedom in Christ. There is a heaven and a hell. And we all know that, right? We all know that someday we're going to die. We don't know when. Some earlier than others. But the truth is, when we die, we will spend eternity in one of two places, heaven or hell. And you don't get to make the choice on that day. Matter of fact, today's a good day to make that choice, if you haven't already. Because when you die, it's boom, you're there. There is no other way of doing it, right? So when we look at this, if we know that to be true, one of the benefits of, of Confessing our sins to a holy God and asking forgiveness is having new life in him, a resurrected life. We just sang that song. I can't tell you in those last couple songs, especially the last one, I was just, I was like almost broken because it's like you knew exactly what I was going to preach on. And Dave and I don't talk sometimes with like, hey, you want to play this song. Hey, you want to preach this. We don't do that, okay? I, I, I know what I'm preaching. He knows what he's saying. We, Sunday morning sometimes it's like, that's exactly what I'm preaching. I don't even need to preach today because we were just singing it. And, and so what I'm, what I'm saying, I guess, is this. As a new person in Christ, somebody who's been forgiven, it's not about I made that decision so I can go to heaven. That's just a benefit, okay, to be in the presence of God. But to be saved from the penalty of death is huge. To have new life in Christ is huge. To have resurrected living is huge. Open up your Bibles uh, there to John chapter 5, and let's look at verse 8. Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Instantly the man was healed. He rode up sleeping mat, and he began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. Now, here's the thing. He heard the commands. He stood up to walk, and he's like, I'm going to do what, what he told me to do, right? Now, I'm going I'm to skip forward to something here, um, because these religious leaders, this happened on the Sabbath. They got a little upset with this because you're supposed to keep the Sabbath holy. They thought God needed some help. So they came up with another 39 rules to help people know how to follow God, okay? Um, God didn't need their help, but they came up with it anyway. And picking up your mat and walking with it, that's breaking the rule. They were... This man broke their rule, not God's rule, okay? So on verse 10, it says the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, you can't work on a Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry your sleeping mat. But he replied, the man who healed me told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who said such a thing? They demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared in the crowd. They were asking the wrong question here. They're like, who said this? Who said this? They should have said, how did it happen? This is, this is incredible. This is worth celebrating. But instead, like, who did it? Who did it? What I love here is the only person who has the right to command you to do something is the one who saves you. And because Jesus has saved us, he has the right to command us, to tell us how to live. If you've ever been saved from, you know, and I've heard even, like, Roger say with his, with his heart attack, it's like, it's like God was telling you to make a change in your life. He saved you, so he has the right to command you, right? Yeah, and so I've, I've heard that before, and I fully agree with that. Look at verse 14, because Jesus finds this man a second time. Verse 14, it says this. It says, but afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, now you're well. 
So stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. So when you read this verse, let's just break this down real quick. Okay, first of all, who found who? And where was this man? Jesus found him again. This time where? In the temple. Why was the man in the temple? I believe because he was going to praise God. I've got a new life. And he did the right thing. He went to give God praise. And he's just like, I know where to go find him. I'll find him in the temple. He's going to be there praising God, me, right? And he finds him there. And what does he say? Hey, where to go? But stop sinning. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. This man had been saved, right? I want you to think about this. Jesus knows our hearts. He knows that we're capable of messing up again. No matter how many times we ask for forgiveness, he knows that we're probably going to mess up again. And even if we think we're strong and we won't sin, God knows you're, you're probably going to trip up, right? And so he goes to this man and he says, stop sinning. I know you're going to do it again, but I want to challenge you right now. Stop sinning. You know what's, you know what's worse than 38 years of disease and sin? Eternity in hell. Stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you. I believe Jesus is reminding him, you know what's worse than what you just went through for all these years? Separation from holy God. So live a holy life. Now, it may have been a moment when Jesus saying all this, that he thinks back to those 38 years. And I don't know why 38, but I'm going to make an educated guest here, okay? And when and I heard this from another pastor and I was studying it, and so I looked at it because the Bible is full of imagery using numbers. We know the number six is incomplete. The number seven is perfection. Twelve and 120, there's all kinds of numbers. Three, they're, they're used in, in showing us something. But 38, tell me where in the Bible do you find 38? You really don't, except one passage. And as I looked at this passage, let me take you back. Moses, everybody remembers Moses, right? Um, Moses was, was called by God to go back into Egypt to free the children of Israel out of slavery. He frees them from slavery, takes them off into the wilderness. They stop, they get the Ten Commandments from God, and then they move on to the promised land. This promised land is where God's called them new life. New life. It's going to be incredible. But here's the problem. When they got to the edge of this new land, this promised land, they sent 12 spies in. They came back. Ten of the spies said, we can't go in there. It's too big. Two of the spies said, it's okay. God's got us. It's going to be incredible. And the people listened to the majority. They disobeyed. Because God already said, I already gave you this land. Why are you sending in spies? But the people are like, we don't want it. God's like, I'm giving you new life. You are rejecting it. Fine, I'm going to send you back out in the wilderness. So God sent them out into the wilderness to wander around until the generation of those people had died off and he brought them back. So let me take you that passage and we'll wrap it up here. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 1 says this, Then we turned around and headed back across the wilderness toward the Red Sea, just as the Lord instructed me. And we wandered around in the region of Mount Seir for a long time. Verse 14 goes on to say, 38, wait, how many years? 38 years passed from the time we left Kadesh Bernia until we finally crossed the Zared Brook. By then, all the men had enough, were old enough to fight in battle had died in the wilderness as the Lord had vowed would happen. 
One more time. Let's try this. How long? 38 years. How long was this man disabled? Again, I, I, I don't know if this is what God is trying to say. I want you to connect some scripture here. But when I look at these two scriptures, I'm thinking about had those people obeyed, they would have been in the promised land. But because they were disobedient, they had to spend 38 years being miserable. Facing all kinds of junk and whining and complaining and death. And then after 38 years, God said, you ready to go back into the promised land? I'm ready, right? And this man disabled for 38 years. God says, I'm freeing you. I'm giving you a new life, a promised land. Are you ready for it? Pick up your mat. Walk. Journey with me. Jesus was standing before this man who had been imprisoned by sickness and loneliness and sin for 38 years. And basically he's saying this, the same thing that he said to the children of Israel. Trust me. I'll go with you into this new life. I'll give you hope. I will give you help. Are you willing to walk with me? Are you willing to journey with me and live a victorious life? Will you live that resurrected life? Worship team, would you come forward, please? What do we learn from this passage? Just a few things here. One, we should be praising God that Jesus can see past the wave of humanity and see you right where you're at, see me right where I'm at. Two, here's the other thing. How about we stop blaming others and realize we're not alone? Here's the third thing. Believe that Jesus can change your life. He's commanded you to get up. He's commanded me to get up. He commanded this man to get up. Will you trust him and stand and journey with him? And the last thing is get up. Stop. Start worshiping God and sin no more. There's so much from the scripture. And again, we come back to the scripture as we get ready for next week. But we come back to the scripture again, trying to give you a different angle from what Brian preached on, helping you understand Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the one who will help us right where we're at. And he says, hey, let's do this. Get up. Walk with me. Let's journey together into living a victorious life. Let's do this. Would you stand, please? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing God you are. I thank you, God, for our opportunities. We can come and worship you in song and truth and, and prayer. God, as we come here, sometimes we come feeling like we're alone. Sometimes we come like this man who's maybe paralyzed by certain things in our life or we're just not spiritually healthy. And really, we got to trust you that you will heal us spiritually. It starts with a simple prayer, admitting our sins, confessing them to you, and then agreeing to turn from them and turning to you. And to stand up and leave that place of sin and to start walking with you and allowing your spirit to lead us. Now, we can simply pray that where we're at right now. And for God, for the rest of us, maybe, again, Lord, we've got that relationship with you. But how many times have we gone back to that pool area to complain with everybody else instead of maybe helping somebody else? God, help us to journey with you, to get up, pick up our mats and to walk with you. And God, help us to share this truth with others. God, I know I say this, it seems like every week, but it is so important, God, that we do this. We love you, Lord. We want to sing now to you because you deserve all the song. In thy name we pray. Amen.